This episode is made possible by PwC. When unprecedented times are all the time, it's time to start walking the talk. Leaders like you turn to PwC to see and stay ahead. Upskill your workforce, use intelligent automation, and transform big ideas into breakthrough outcomes. Explore the human-led, tech-powered solutions that help you thrive. It's all part of The New Equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com. This is Autoline After Hours with John McElroy and Gary Vasilash, episode 563 for July 15th of 2021. GM Hydrotech gets ready for the hydrogen revolution. Watch Autoline After Hours live at autoline.tv every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time. That's 12 p.m. Pacific. You can subscribe to this podcast for free by searching for AutoLine in iTunes, Stitcher, or YouTube. AutoLine After Hours is brought to you by Bridgestone Tires, solutions for your journey, and by Borg Warner, propulsion solutions that support a clean, energy-efficient world. Hey, Gary. John, how are you? I'm doing okay, you know, fresh off vacation and back into the mad rat race again. No show last week. That's right. I forgot about that. And and we had the opportunity earlier this week to do a little off-roading. That was was all good good fun. Yeah, you and I both got to drive the new Ford Bronco, not the Bronco Mm -hmm. Sport, what I call the real Bronco. Hope I didn't insult anybody with the Sport, but I mean, (laughs) that Bronco, wow. it go anywhere kind of vehicle. The yeah, goat, so, as they call it, go over mm-hmm. any terrain. So I, I, w- I was looking for what happened in history today. And so so the first one, I figured it would be impossible for you to get. That in, in 1903, the first order from Model A came in. It was from a dentist in Chicago. But this the second one sounds more like something you might get. Okay, I so hope. This, this sounds like might be right up your alley. This is 1909, and a car company that still exists was established. Now, if you remember what I just said to you, there's a clue in there. A car company that still exists got established. Mm-hmm. Little, little before that, what I said, just a little before that is the clue. Uh-huh. Um I'm going to guess. No, I'm not going to guess. I don't know. What is it? Audi. Really? So Auto it was, Union back then, right? It, 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 was, it, was, it was, no, no, no. It was founded by August Horst. And his name in Latin is Audi. And that means to hear. So to listen, it right. sounds like something you might get. Okay. <laughs> I'm not that bright, Gary. That went right over my head. (laughs) All right, let's just bring Lindsay in. Lindsay Brock. Hello. How you doing? I'm fine, John. Hi, Gary. How you doing? Good. What's new in your world, or is there anything new in your world? Well, I I agree with you, John, on the Bronco. I think it's just a a slam dunk for Ford, and uh, it'll be interesting to see how Jeep kind of reacts in some ways that I believe the Bronco is really superior to a Wrangler and that the Wrangler being the Bronco's 
main competitor, really. What, what do you think it's superior at? Well, on-road manners. Just yep, totally Bronco, agree. Bronco kills it, just kills yeah. it. Yeah. Um, but we all kind of knew that, and, you know, Wrangler really didn't have a competitor for a long time, so now it does. And uh, just, you know, bump steer, Wrangler's got, uh, Bronco doesn't have it. Um, just on-road manners just uh, is really exceptional for that vehicle. Oh, come on, Lindsay. Nobody drives those on-road. Come on. <laughs> Don't be a baby. <laughs> hey, All look, right, we got a special guest today. We're only going to have him for half a show. we got to bring him in. There he is, Charlie Freeze, Executive hey, Director of Hydrotech at General Motors. Charlie, great to see you. Good to see you too, John. So, and, Charlie, uh, the last time we had you on the show was for the – 1966 Electra van. Now you haven't been working on hydrogen that long, have you? No, no. We had Floyd with us, Wyselek, uh, when we were in that in that uh, that show. But um, yeah, unfortunately, Floyd's passed since then. But uh, yeah, it was very interesting discussing how that technology evolved from such an early early start in the 60s. Charlie, you know what my favorite story that that he had was when they built the whole fuel cell. They really didn't know how to turn it on. And it yeah. took him like, I, I'd have to go back and look at the show, show but I think he, he said it took him like three days to figure it out, how to turn it on. Yeah, it took a long time. Yeah, and most customers aren't quite that patient. <laughs> <laughs> so just so our viewers know, too, you're not just a, a hydrogen fuel cell guy. I mean, you've designed all kinds of piston engines, right, in your career. Yeah, actually, uh, so my, my beginnings were all with diesel engines and uh, way back to Detroit Diesel and, and worked on a lot of diesel engines. I, um, actually, my first uh, interview was uh, on video was with you, John, on, on the, remember the Delta uh, diesel engine that we did for Detroit Diesel. And that was actually to get into the lighter duty pickup trucks and things like that. So, yeah, it goes way back to that. And it wasn't until um, 2008 that I got into the into the fuel cell world. In fact, just so our viewers who are watching, I know uh, some of the podcasters may not know, but you got a couple of models of Corvettes in the background that Roger Penske actually raced. Not not people who drove for him, he raced. And I, I heard you say he autographed them for you. Yeah, those are some of my, my prize models. Yep, I always keep those uh, in my office. Uh, those are the two that he drove and, and my about my favorite body model or body style for the, for the Corvette, yep. Totally yeah. agree. Agreed. So give us a thumbnail. What is GM Hydrotech? So the Hydrotech um, brand is is basically um, defining the, the technology and the product that we're now commercializing for the hydrogen fuel cell. And that's that's part of our our zero 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 vision that GM has set, which is to to take out to go to zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And what we've been doing lately is we've we've been on the process of taking that technology to production and putting it into some applications that become very interesting because they they actually address all three of the zeros. Um, trying to, to move toward um, zero emissions is obvious with fuel cells because it just makes water. But when you start talking about zero congestion and zero crashes, um, we're getting into some really interesting commercial type applications like commercial trucks with Navistar. And we've recently announced Wabtech, uh, which is to put it into locomotives and um, also getting into aircraft applications with Liebherr. And what that does is that gets us um, the ability to take some of the freight and other things off the roads. So 
that's great for reducing congestion and, and uh, moving toward the zero crash solutions. Um, but it's also giving us the ability to get into the air, which gives you the, the third dimension there. And, and uh, that's a great way to reduce congestion on the roads as well. So what we're doing is we're taking that technology into the places where it can make sense and uh, provide sustainable solutions at the earliest possible introduction. That's what's uh, so exciting about how we're trying to uh, move into commercialization right now. Go ahead, Lindsay. I was just going to say, um, uh, how about marine use, Charlie? Um, I know that the, the German Navy used some fuel cells in, um, in some small coastal submarines. And I wanted to say this was maybe 20 years ago. I visited a company called Ballard, uh, who, who you probably know up in Vancouver. And they were ready to ship one of these marine fuel cells. And I thought it was really interesting, you know, uh, replacing diesel engines, which you're very familiar with, uh, in, in a marine application, a submarine application. So uh, it seems like there's many, many opportunities here for General Motors. Yeah, so that's actually one of the things that we started doing when we were doing the very early work with the, the U.S. Navy was uh, we put some of the, the Gen Zero fuel cell systems, which that's the one that was in the Equinox in 2007. We put we put a fleet of Equinoxes, uh, 119 of them out into real world customer hands. And uh, some of those actually are still running today. And, mm -hmm. and the idea uh, was we took that same technology and adapted it for unmanned underwater vehicles. And that gave them the ability to take out the batteries that would typically require a lot of complex, you know, capture of the submarine and recharging times, all the things that go with that. And, and also you suffer some performance limitations when you put the battery into the cold environment, you might leave it there for months at a time without wanting to run the system. And with putting a fuel cell in, we overcame all of that. We were able to get a lot of power into the vessel, uh, which could all be utilized and it could go into kind of a, a, a weight, and, you know, kind of a stationary hold mode. So it didn't have to sit there and run continuously and it didn't lose its charge because it had hydrogen on board. Uh, so that was a very interesting application that we're, we're continuing to explore with the Navy. Oh, interesting, yeah. Char Charlotte, let me ask you, okay, so you, you've talked about railroad trains, you've talked about aircraft, you're, you're, you're saying class eight trucks, big rigs. Um, what about consumer vehicles? Is, does the fuel cell have a role to play there or is, is that something that you're not paying a whole lot of attention to? Yeah, so Gary, that's a great question. And, and, and I think one of the, yes, the answer to your question is yes, to, to get to the breadth of the portfolio that GM and our products deal with, you've got to have both batteries and fuel cells. And one of the great things about the GM strategy is we've developed a, a strong depth in both areas. And you need that to balance, put the technologies where they make sense. Sometimes a, a battery is the best solution. Sometimes a, a hybridized solution that has both battery and fuel cells is the right solution. So that's the approach that we've 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 been building on. And the, the real trick to getting into these early adopter mode um, places where the fuel cell can start to come to market now is to deal with the, the old chicken or the egg problem of hydrogen infrastructure. And the way that we get through that is we, we, don't, we don't tackle the chicken or the egg at all. We go around it instead and, and look for applications where you can put centralized refueling in place and you can think of it as an ecosystem. And some of these, these consumers that have fleets of vehicles put in their own fueling anyway. So sizing the infrastructure for the, for the hydrogen supply 
AI and the, and the dispensing strategies can allow us to fix both the, the product side and the infrastructure side at the same time. And if you want to think about where fuel cells are, are getting a, a strong foothold today, it's places like factories and warehouses where they have forklifts and it's already displacing uh, battery powered solutions. So they have hydrogen fueling that's happening right there. And, and what comes up to a factory or a warehouse, it's a commercial truck. So building on that infrastructure and then using the, uh, the commercial truck and its other connection points as the logical locations for hydrogen fueling, that gives you that, that great starting point. And the other places that that would intersect are places like rail yards. And so rail is another great example of that. And um, also uh, shipping ports and, and airports. And so getting to those nodes where you have these different uh, modes of transportation all intersecting and they're large vehicles that consume a lot of fuel, they need fast uh, turnaround times for recharging or refueling. That's kind of the logical starting point. And um, that's, there's already, in some of those cases, a total cost of ownership incentive to put hydrogen fuel cells into those applications. Hey, so that's just a great let me just get a clarification on that. So, so, so go back to the factory where they're using the forklifts that are hydrogen powered. Mm -hmm. So what you're saying is that because they have fueling on site there, that if a truck rolls in as it delivers its product, it could be hooked up to the same system and be refueled then. That that's one of the, one of the places you could refuel exactly. And sometimes it's you know it's a centrally distribute uh, a fleet that will come back to a central location and then fan out to a number of locations. And that might be the logical fueling point. But these are predictable routes, so you know where the vehicles go. And and this is a much stronger approach to try to get into the market rather than thinking about let's say a small consumer vehicle where you know nobody knows where we're going to refuel and everybody wants it to be convenient at the local street corner. So that becomes a very difficult infrastructure play to make at the beginning when there aren't many vehicles on the road and you can't utilize these stations to the maximum extent possible. You might have stations that you need just for convenience, but they might right now fuel one vehicle a week. And that happens in California. That's a very expensive way to try to start to build out the infrastructure. Instead, I think, you know, building on something like what we're talking about with commercial vehicles makes a lot more sense. And, and that's actually, I mean, if you think about it, Back when the diesels were first coming into pickup trucks, um, you know, everybody would come to me and say, nobody's ever going to want one of those things because, my gosh, you have to fuel up at a, at a truck stop. And, and, you know, to everybody's surprise, actually, people liked those trucks uh, because of what they offered. They would fuel up at the truck stop. They preferred to fuel up in other locations. And because so many of them came out on the road, eventually they started rolling out stations at your local street corner. So every mire that I drive by pretty much has a, has a, a, hydro or a diesel uh, fueling pump at it. So so, you know, that's probably the kind of model that you'll see for the hydrogen infrastructure as well. Mm. Charlie, we've a, oh, go ahead, John. Yeah, we, we've got a question here from one of our viewers, Dave Tuttle. He wants to know, do you have any estimate for the time frame of when a class eight hydrogen truck would have the same total cost of ownership as a diesel one? This episode is made possible by PwC. A robot may not be coming for your job, but competitors are coming for your market share. At PwC, we pair the right tech with the right solutions to help you gain a competitive edge. Reimagine operations from the cloud, fuel innovation with responsible AI, and detect risks before they become headlines. That's human-led and tech-powered. It's all part of The New Equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com.
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Yeah, well, actually, when we're coming, and we haven't announced the exact um, rollout because it's dependent upon some customers that we're supporting, but... um, when those vehicles come out into the marketplace, which is very soon, um, you'll already see that in certain applications, you'll get that total cost of ownership that's better than a diesel in some cases. Now, it's not going to be across the board. It, it depends upon what you're hauling, how far you're hauling it, um, what type of you know, what type of uh, geography that you're in. All those things play a factor in it. But um, if if you just look at it. If you're hauling heavy payloads, so hauling water and steel and you know petroleum or whatever you're moving that's heavy, that's that's the kind of payload where the hydrogen fuel cell technology will excel. If you're moving empty Amazon boxes and you know um, potato chips, you might be better off with a battery electric technology. But we're already seeing these applications where it can make sense, and that's that's going to be the starting point. Go ahead, Charlie, you, Charlie, years ago, you and I had a discussion about energy density of fuels, which I thought was really interesting. And you were in diesels at the time. So we know that diesel is way off the chart compared to gasoline, much more per unit, much more energy dense. And gasoline is better than just about every, uh, you know, lead acid batteries, nickel metal hydride batteries, lithium batteries. Where does a unit of hydrogen stand on that scale or the cubic foot uh, and and how are you using that as uh, as really an advantage in developing these propulsion systems yeah so as, as you start to go toward electrification um, you have basically two options you've got the, the the battery technology which is right now moving in the direction of lithium-ion batteries and then you have hydrogen fuel cells and so those are your two choices and and today liquid petroleum fuels still have a great advantage in terms of energy storage density. I mean, there's no question about that. But um, if you're going to move toward zero emissions, you're going to move toward the efficiency advantages that come from that, you're going to have to deal with either hydrogen or batteries. And one of the ways to, to, to get this high energy storage density on board the vehicles is to leverage the advantages that come with hydrogen. And if you want to think about it just on a, an equivalency basis, basically one kilogram of hydrogen has about the same amount of energy as, as a gallon of gasoline. But you have the added advantages that you're getting about twice the efficiency out of the propulsion system. So you need a lot less energy on board to get the same range. So it it is something that we can manage. And and if you start thinking about some of the applications that we've been talking about, like the class seven and eight trucks or locomotives, um, you know, those are some places where packaging that amount of energy on board becomes very practical. Um, we're already seeing very, very reasonable ways of doing it. And then once you've dealt with that, then you can get the advantages, of, advantages that come out of the zero emissions, uh, efficient electrification. And, and how about losses, Charlie, in the entire ecosystem of hydrogen from production to fueling the vehicle? We know battery electrics have a lot right now, and the industry really has to work on this. But uh, how, how does the hydrogen system uh, play out in that regard? Well, it, it's it's a it's an interesting question that you're asking there because um, what you have to think about from the product kind of a 
well-to-wheels type analysis uh, applied to hydrogen. Today, a lot of the hydrogen's coming out of reformation of natural gas. And that's because hydrogen's actually quite available around the country. It just isn't at the place that you would want to necessarily fill up a truck. So the, the trick is, how are you going to, how are you going to deal with that overall supply chain, all the way from production through the end result of getting the, the vehicles filled up. And, and today, um, there just isn't a, a built out pipeline system to move the hydrogen, so it's moved with trucks. And that's, that's going to put a, re, a real constraint on uh, kind of how far you wanna move it because that's expensive. And then you have to store it in the location that you're ultimately going to use it. And that has tank costs and other things like that. And then you have to chill it and compress it and put it on board the vehicle. So those are the, those are the pieces that play into this. But what's interesting is if you start to build this out, once you get enough consumption of the hydrogen and you, you, and you look at some of the technologies that are evolving around um, electrolysis, then you can start to actually make your hydrogen close to the point that you're dispensing it, which takes that, that upfront part of making the hydrogen somewhere else and shipping it and the, the expenses that go with that, or even the storage costs get minimized. And you start to tune the system so that you're actually producing the hydrogen close to these big distribution locations where you're, you're fueling big vehicles like locomotives or fleets of trucks and things like that. And that can open up all sorts of other applications like trying to balance the renewables on the grid where you don't have the production of um, wind or solar electricity on the grid matching the demand and there's nowhere to put it. So instead you curtail those resources. Well, if you have these electrolyzers that can essentially operate in a way that they're taking that off the grid, you're basically capturing what would otherwise be wasted energy and you're making a, a useful fuel out of it. So it's another way to kind of build this thing out. And if you think about, about it as an ecosystem, that can bring those costs down dramatically. So costs that are below $2 a kilogram of hydrogen are possible in the future. Um, you know, right now we're sitting at about five and five is like $2.50 a gallon gasoline. So wow. yeah. it's already into a kind of a practical range and you, it, it can go much further than that in the future. Wow, cool, great. Yeah. Charlie, fuel cells are not new. I mean, I'll bet I drove my first R&D car, but I'll bet I drove it 20, 25 years ago. And in fact, more recently than that, I spent a whole day driving in a fuel cell powered Chevrolet Equinox in Los Angeles. And, you know, they're, they're still not quite there. What are the, the things that you're working on to be able to commercialize it? And I'm asking not just from the fuel cell standpoint, but the tank as well. Isn't that big part of the issue from a cost standpoint? Well, all of that cost has come down dramatically, but the reason why we didn't take the Equinox to production, the one that you drove around Los Angeles, I mean, I think you'll recall, that was a very nice vehicle to drive. I mean, I, I've had it in my garage. I've driven it around, you know, from home to work. I've driven it in all different parts of the country where we've had that, that fleet deployed, and it's great. I mean, it works in cold temperatures, hot temperatures. It fuels quickly and easily. I mean, it was, it was a great vehicle, but it was expensive. That was the problem. And, and so that's why that vehicle didn't go to production. We, we knew that we had to come down the cost curve and a lot of things had to happen to bring it down that cost curve. We had, we had to have some techno technological um, evolution of, the, of what we were doing, not just in the fuel cell, but as you said, in the hydrogen storage. But then we also had to go through and, and develop some other solutions and, and have some innovation that would help us get through that. And we've done a lot of that. So some examples are um, the precious metal that went into making that stack work for the Equinox. There were 80, there was 80 grams of platinum in that system. So that's expensive. And we brought that down um, in the gen one system that came after that, we came down to about 27 grams of platinum. 
still too expensive, wow. but that's a dramatic reduction. And, and this is for a system that would produce about the same amount of power, but the system also got a lot smaller. It got to about half the size, half the mass. So now you, you aren't just sitting at with something that needs a big vehicle like an Equinox to haul it around, but you can get into actually a, a passenger car if you want to with something that's that small. And then we went uh, one more step beyond that. And so that's the Gen 2 system. That's the one we're actually commercializing today with Honda. And that system actually gets us down below 20 grams of platinum. And we're testing systems in the lab that go down to seven. So, you know, mm. the, the, the cost trajectory is, is very aggressive. And then we had to also do work where we were not just looking at the product design, but in parallel, doing all the work on the processes to manufacture it. So it's part and process all at the same time. And that meant that we had to look outside of the automotive industry because in automotive, we know how to scale. We know how to do things and get automotive quality, all the kinds of things that go around that. But what we really needed were things that were new approaches because of some of the technology that comes along with fuel cells. So we borrowed from industries like the filmmaking business where Kodak uh, developed a lot of capability around making films. And that applies right to the soft goods that we put into the middle of the fuel cell. Um, also things like taking the, the, the uh, bipolar plates that were a composite graphite material, they were thick, expensive, you know, brittle, and um, instead, we, we went to a stamped metal design. So you can think about making that um, something that we could stamp very thin. So now the whole size of the stack gets smaller. Um, and, and that looks a lot more like a head gasket. So we know how to do head gaskets, <laughs> head gaskets for a long time. So it's not quite that easy, but I mean, it's, it's borrowing on those same common technologies or, or the, a big expense in a fuel cell is the thing that moves the air. So this is a compressor system. It happens to be motor driven, but it's a compressor system that looks a lot like a turbocharger. So, you know, if you go back to my background, those things look nice and familiar to me. That's all off of a diesel engine. So we started bringing those technologies and then bringing them in with other technologies from filmmaking and actually paper making, roll to roll manufacturing type things. And uh, in GM, we've been developing that part and process together. And that's brought us down that cost curve pretty aggressively. Charlie, you talk about commercialization. When I think about your colleagues at Altium, I think, okay, so there's Altium batteries that people can get. Then there are the Altium power modules of various sizes that can use the batteries and, and make the vehicle go. Does Hydratech have something that's analogous to that? I mean, you know, when we talk about fuel cells, I mean, we, we act as though everybody knows what they are. I mean, so, so I mean, what are the things that, you know, you provide to a Navistar or a Wabtech or what have you? I mean, what, what are they? Well, that's a great question, Gary. So what, what we've done is, um, if you think of under hood, a fuel cell, like it, what we had in Equinox was very, I'll call it disintegrated. Um, you know, you have a stack system, but you have parts around under hood that are all placed in locations. Kind of like when you look under a hood of a, of a conventional technology, like an in engine, you see air cleaners and all the things that are distributed under hood, but that's hard to just kind of lift and drop into some of these other applications. So what we did was we developed what we call the power cube. So this is, this is the, the Hydrotech fuel cell technology integrated into kind of a, a standardized, um, we'll call it a, a cube. Um, it's, it's actually kind of rectangular in shape, but um, there you go, you've got a picture of it. So, yeah. so what that does is that standardizes the interfaces and it lets us, so we bring in air, we bring in hydrogen and we bring in 
coolant after it goes through through the radiator system. And then out from that, we have power, we have some waste uh, exhaust, which is basically water vapor, and then hot coolant. And, and so this system standardizes the interfaces. And you can think about if you want to go into something like, um, let's say, a Navistar Class A truck, you could maybe put two or three of those systems onto a truck and, and have those standardized interfaces. And you don't have to deal with trying to, to break the pieces apart, package them all around the vehicle. Instead, you just have these modules. And in that case of, of the truck, we're actually locating them where the diesel tanks are located on the sides of the Class A truck today. If you want to think about a locomotive, now you might put 20 or 25 of those systems together, and then you can put a very high power system on, on rails. And it's, again, just reuse of that same basic module to, to, to get us through those, um, those transitions to the different markets. And Charlie, beyond the stack, how about uh, what kind of progress is being made on onboard storage? Uh, we used to have, you know, composite spiral wound, cylindrical, very expensive, high pressure tanks. Uh, is has that needle moved at all? Well, there's been cost reductions. Um, the technology continues to evolve. We're still looking at, at compressed gaseous storage for most of these applications, um, on uh, at least on road applications. And it's because it actually is a is a pretty pretty effective way of putting the hydrogen on board and dealing with it from a, a refueling standpoint. But um, there's been a lot of work in how we develop those tanks. You know, the the, the way you you um, you wrap the, the the carbon fiber around it so you can minimize the use of the carbon fiber. Um, getting confidence in the systems in terms of how how much of a safety margin you've got to build into kind of the design of, you know, if you have to over-design it a lot, it gets a lot heavier. Um, so optimization of the system so you can actually design it um, at, so it's perfectly sized and matched to what the system requirements are. And then standardization. So the industry starts to standardize. So now you can get some scale. And you know, multiple companies might be using similar or or the same tank systems, and so that's all a way that the cost can evolve down the down that cost curve. But when we talk about some of the applications like locomotives or maybe in aerospace, now you can start to think about putting liquid hydrogen on board, because one of the one of the drawbacks when we talk about a car that you and I drive is nobody knows how long we're going to leave it parked. If we take it to the to the airport and we park it, it might sit there for two weeks, and nobody wants to come back with a vehicle that they had fueled before it came to the airport, and it's nearly empty because it boiled off all the hydrogen during that time frame. So instead, if we think about these applications where you've got a, a predictable route, like an airplane, it takes off, you want to have it take off near full, you want it to land near empty, that's a perfect application for liquid hydrogen. And so now you can start to bring the cost of storing a lot of energy on board down even further, and it becomes, it's a, it's a, a more mass and volumetric efficient way of putting the hydrogen energy on board. Interesting. Cool. Wow. Yeah. You mentioned Honda. How are you guys divvying up the work on it? Do you say, hey, you guys take the compressor, we'll take the plates, or, you know, how do you work that out? Yeah, so the, the Honda collaboration began in 2013. Um, that was actually where we, we started doing the advanced work, and, and we picked up on this Gen 2 kind of concept that I, I mentioned earlier. And then we took that through. We started, a, a, you know, the full co-development a couple of years later after that, where we were working toward the, the production system. And then in 2017, that's also when we announced the manufacturing joint venture. So it's been kind of a, a stepwise pro, uh, progression from the advanced work all the way into the product development. And what we did was um, we, we've, we work as a complete 
uh, team. I mean, it's integrated. There are Honda people in our facilities. There are GM people in Honda facilities. And um, all of our meetings are, are jointly managed. And, and what that allowed us to do is build on the best intellectual property from both companies. So um, Honda and GM at the time were number one and number two in the uh, patent space. So we took all the best ideas. We used that as kind of the starting point. And then um, we could we could build out the team. And rather than having two teams that are, you know, using the same amount of resources for two completely different systems, we were able to combine them. So we could put more resources onto the same system and we could share that work. So the teams, they meet every day. I mean, you know, we we, we manage the 13-hour difference in time. Uh, so it means a lot of very early morning or a lot of late in the evening meetings. But uh, the teams have gotten pretty used to how to do that. And so um, it's it's completely integrated. So to your point, um, yeah, sometimes there's a Honda person that might be doing, let's say, a, a you know, a, a compressor or a bipolar plate or something like that. And there'd be a, a GM person that might be working on a membrane or, you know, a, an electrode design or something of that nature. So that's how we kind of break it up. And it's all done as an integrated team. Charlie, when will we see a number of hydrogen-powered vehicles on the road. I mean, um, you know, we, we did a show some years ago with with Toyota and their Project Portal. I mean, and so there's a few of those out there. Um, Hyundai's talked about having their fuel cell truck. You know, but but again, th these are very small. I mean, you might you might see them like unicorns. I mean, do, do you see within five years, two years, three years that we we may actually just see them commonly? Well, I think I think it's going to probably depend on where you live, right? Um, you know, sometimes there's going to be, um, there's going to be infrastructure that's going to develop um, according to these applications that we talked about. So if you have a, a certain set of applications where they're very um, supportive of a total cost of ownership model where it already makes sense to move toward hydrogen, in these big vehicles, it'll have payback because these commercial vehicles, those are tools, right? I mean, those are money makers for the pe the people that own those fleets. And so if you can't turn a profit with it and, and do something more cost effectively, then it's not going to it's not going to grow and, and, and find its way into large fleets as quickly. So the, the whole key here is to find those applications and then go into those first. And I think, you know, we're, we're definitely in the decade that you're going to start seeing these things come out. And, and I, I do have confidence that there's going to be certain market segments where it's going to start to take off. If you if you want to just see where the, the most hydrogen fueled vehicles are, it's actually in forklifts. I mean, you know, it might not sound as as uh, as interesting to people that are that are in you know some of the businesses that you're in, but you know that that is actually there are tens of thousands of forklifts with with uh, hydrogen fuel cells, and they they just happen to operate kind of out of the way and inside buildings. But, um, you know, it's already showing that, that there's that reason for doing it. And, and I think what you'll see over time here is they're going to start kind of the, the trucks that pick up at those locations, that's going to, to start to evolve toward the, the hydrogen fuel cell. And, and I, you know, I've got a lot of confidence that the, the locomotive applications that we're starting to develop right now with Wabtec have that same opportunity ahead of them. And um, it'll be a little longer before you see the aerospace applications just because of the, the length of time for their development cycle. You know, mm -hmm. automotive, we get used to three, four, five year windows where products kind of turn over or you know, something like that. But now you start talking about aerospace and it's a it's a 10 year cycle. The, the products are there pretty much unchanged for 40 years. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a very different model, but um, it'll start to come eventually too. 
Charlie, how about the military? Uh, you guys showed us, geez, it must have been seven or eight years ago now out at Milford, uh, a neat little kind of off-road um, you know, truck that was fuel cell powered and uh, a lot of advantages for the Army in this, right? Yeah, I think so. I think it comes right down to solving the customer's unanswered needs, right? I mean, that, that's, that's what this is all about, whether it's we got a, a better cost model for, for putting the technology out there, or there's some unmet need. Like um, in the case of the military, they needed some something that would be silent watch capable. So, you know, stealth. And and, and, and stealth is a lot of things, right? It's, it's sound, it's, it's smoke, smell. I mean, it's all of these things. And so putting the, the hydrogen fuel cell into a truck that could um, export, let's say, more than 25 kilowatts of power, it could be flexible. So... Um, you know, when we developed the service concept, that was allowing us to have a kind of a chassis that could be adaptable into everything from a truck to a cargo carrier. And if, eventually you could think about that as migrating toward autonomous technology. So that's where you can you can let the thing drive itself um, and, and it could carry um, cargo. So that takes the soldier out of harm's way. So these are the kinds of things that you can start to evolve the technology toward. And it's, again, it's not a one size fits all. Sometimes, um, you know, J the Army loves to use a single fuel, uh, JP-8, and they, they make their systems all compatible with that. And that's great for certain applications, but you can make, you can tr turn that JP-8 into hydrogen and you can start to, to use it to do things that you can't do with with uh, something that burns JP8. You can you can operate with stealth. You can operate um, in in you know, certain missions that can be a great way to to accomplish the goal. And you have this added advantage that if you're in an austere environment and you're using a hydrogen fuel cell, your waste product is water, which is very valuable to you in some of those applications. <laughs> and you can make it in route, right? So. Um, you know, and, and that kind of ties in the same thing when you talk about aerospace. So in aerospace, um, what we're finding is the first step is to think about you take that you take that turpent out of the tail of the airplane and you replace it with a hydrogen fuel cell. And that does a lot of nice things for you, not just efficiency, um, but think about think about when you've boarded an aircraft, especially if you ever had to do it from the tarmac and you've got everybody's putting uh, bags on the plane and they've got heavy air protection because you've got that, that turbine just singing away in the back. And it's oh, that's that, the, AP, the APU. APU, that's the yeah, piercing yeah. sound that comes with it. Well, so just imagine if you pull that off board and you put in a quiet fuel cell that you can't even hear. Um, I mean, there's a, there's a great, a great process of improving the product and the customer experience. I mean, for me, with the way my travel seems to always change when we were in the days of traveling quite frequently, you know, my, my travel would change and I get a last minute seat on an aircraft and I'd be the guy that have to sit in the back of the plane up against the, you know, right okay, the, the APU. by the, the APU and you listen to it on the plane too, right? So we can actually improve that whole thing and put a fuel cell on board. We get the efficiency advantages that come out of it. It's zero emissions technology, but then you can start to think about other things like what about using the water that you produce as a waste product now that can be used for either humidifying the, the passenger compartment or it can be used for flushing toilets and a big a big uh, uh, aircraft a commercial aircraft for passengers i think it takes off with about two tons of water to flush toilets wow. we can make the water in flight 
um, why not use the heat that we're rejecting as a source of heat for the passenger compartment instead of having electrical heaters that are using some of your onboard power capacity to go in and heat the passenger compartment. So this is the way that you can start to see the technology. If you just think about it in compartmentalized ways, you kind of lose the whole picture of what is possible to right. evolve the craft or a, a other vehicle applications towards something that can be even better than it is today. It's yeah. exciting. It is. It is. And it's probably a good place to, to wrap up the segment, too. So, Charlie Freeze, thanks so much for coming on the show. I, I mean, it's really exciting to see how much progress you guys are making and how you're looking at other markets other than just cars and SUVs to really bring fuel cells to the market. Well, nice talking to you today. Thanks. Thanks, Charlie. Thanks, Charlie. All right. Hey, we're going to take a quick commercial break right now. Give a shout out to our good friends at Bridgestone and Borg Warner, and we'll be back right after this. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The world is changing at an ever-increasing pace. No matter what the mode of transportation, there is always the need for an efficient propulsion system. And that's exactly what Borg Warner has been doing since the earliest days of the automotive industry. We create innovative mobility technologies that reduce energy consumption and emissions while improving performance. Our proven track record has made us an industry leader in forward-looking propulsion solutions for combustion, hybrid, and electric vehicles. All right, we're back. You know, it's so interesting listening to Charlie talk about all this stuff because now I believe it's going to happen. You know, all of us have known for years, oh, yeah, fuel cells, they're the future of the industry, and they've always been the future of the industry. But, wow, now it looks like it's right around the corner. Yeah, well, when you look at, John, the kind of the disadvantages of battery electric for some of these applications he was talking about, um, you know, you take the diesel out of the equation, what's left? Well, I think this could really fit the bill there. Yeah, I like think, he I was talking could, about. Could is the operative word, Lindsay, could. Well, yeah, and it's, it's you know, like he mentioned, it's the, the fueling infrastructure is a big one on this one. Yeah, and that always has been. But as he pointed out, there is a lot of hydrogen out there. And we didn't get into the whole hydrogen story. I wanted to talk fuel cells with him. But, you know, clearly the answer is what they're calling green hydrogen. You know, you don't want to necessarily reformulate this stuff from natural gas. You know, you want to use some sort of green source, solar power, whatever, that is going to be zero emission. 
and that's what I think is really going to be driving this market is more and more countries talk about banning piston engine vehicles. You know, ultimately it is going to get to trucks and locomotives and aircraft and the like. And uh, fuel cells sure seem like they fit the bill for that. But boy, so when if, you if look we, at that package they've created, I mean, it's um, unbelievable. It's really the size of kind of like a small Ecotech three or four cylinder engine. Everything's in there. So, so it strikes me, okay, so, so the three of us have been, been following this development of fuel cells for considerable Ever. number of years. And it was always the case where there would be some executive from the car company that would go up to the tail tailpipe and put a glass under it and get the water out and then say, you can drink this. Now, if, if we move beyond people saying, you can drink this, then I'll begin to believe that we're really going to get somewhere. And this is a real product, a real industrial product that people are going to be deploying to good use. <laughs> well, you know, I, yeah. I, I like what he's talking about. Locomotives, heavy trucks, potentially aircraft, yeah. because uh, I, I agree, you know, for everyday use as a passenger vehicle, the infrastructure is just not there and it's not going to be there for right. uh, certainly in this country for a long time to come. But for Even, for routes where you go back to a yard every night, sure you can do that. Yeah, and and again, the trucks have the space on the vehicle to package these large tanks. But a great thing that we didn't talk about much is it's it's the fueling is just about as quick as fueling a liquid fueled vehicle, which is a big advantage versus electrics right now. Yeah, John, you remember when you and I were fueling a um, a Honda Clarity? I think it was. We were in California, and, and we we drove up to a station, and and basically it was it was just like pumping liquid gasoline. Yeah. So let's um, let's move on. I know Gary, you've prepared some questions here that you think we ought to get into. Well, you know, one of the things that I I thought was interesting, and in, in you know, Charlie mentioned. Um, this the, the the popularity of of diesels for for um light duty pickups and i thought it was interesting that ford announced that the f-150 after three years is pulling the diesel from its offerings now i want to ask you guys is are, are they doing this in anticipation of the f-150 lightning or is this just simply a play of you know what we're selling so few of these things let's just let's just get rid of them yeah, I, I don't know if the lightning is really going to fill f fill this bill. And I'll tell you, you know, towing with an electric vehicle, man, your range just plummets. Put a payload in those trucks, uh, you know, versus what Ford is claiming in terms of range for this vehicle. Th that range is unloaded that they're that they're portraying out there. And so, you know, tow your Airstream up, uh, you know, through West Virginia or out west and it's not going to replace diesel. You know, diesel keeps doing the job. If there's, you know, a gallon left in the tank, it's still going to perform exactly like it did when the tank was full. And electrics aren't that way. And, um, you know, we know how they perform. John, you and I have talked, Gary, the three of us have talked about wintertime performance as well. So I don't know. I mean, I, yeah, they're looking at the sales numbers, but I don't think F-150 Lightning is going to fill that gap anytime soon. Yeah, I, I, I was caught by surprise by this announcement that Ford said it was going to drop the diesel in the F-150. But I mean, I and I don't know the breakout of sales. Ford does a good job of selling diesel engines. 
especially in its uh, heavy-duty pickups. Right. Uh, and they make a lot of money on them. I mean, they charge an arm and a leg for those things. Uh, I don't know the reasoning behind dropping it in the F-150, but I suspect, Gary, maybe you're right that they're trying to limit customer choice to push more people into the electric one. Yeah. Yeah, it'll be an interesting thing to watch. Um, you know, one, one of the things that I think that we're, we're seeing, and, and um, I, I think this is, this is absolutely key to the industry moving ahead, is that we're going from an industry which, which basically had been focused on, you know, internal combustion to alternatives. And, you know, so, you know, we're seeing fuel cells, perhaps, and then certainly battery electric vehicles. Now, John, you alluded to the fact that there's going to be um, more and more countries eliminating, I mean, not minimizing, eliminating internal combustion engines. I mean, the, the European Commission came out this week and basically said, by 2035, no more internal combustion engines. Now, of course, that has to be approved. I mean, there's, I don't know, 27 countries involved. And I mean, it's, but, but I mean, to even think such a thing would be possible. Um, do you guys think that, that the industry's leadership is capable of wrapping their collective minds around this idea of, you know, what the, what, what the industry has been doing for 110 years ain't gonna cut it anymore? Well, one clarification, you know, what Europe's talking about is banning the sale of new piston engines at that time. So if you've already bought one, it's not like, you know, the the the, the piston police are going to come along and say, hey, you give me that car. You can't have it anymore. Uh, but they're not going to allow you to buy a new one. But uh, I, I think the industry is absolutely uh, on board with the reality. It varies by company. But look at the amount of money that you know, Volkswagen and General Motors and I, I the, in this week alone or last week alone, Stellantis, they're, you know, committing tens and tens and tens of billions of dollars of investment into this. I think they get it. I think they recognize the, the political reality that's out there and they're preparing themselves. And I was so interested to see that Volvo is spinning off all its internal combustion engine business and transmissions including all the engineers and the R&D people and everything into a separate company along with Geely, you know, its parent. And they're going to continue to build, and that includes all the hybrid stuff too, by the way, they're going to continue to build piston engines. They're going to primarily use them in China, which has not announced a ban quite like the uh, European Union has. And, uh, I, I gotta believe that other automakers are going to be looking at doing the same thing. You know, we're, we're in the sunset years of the internal combustion engine, but they're still a massive part of the business. I mean, certainly in the US, what 97% of everything going out the showroom door today has got a piston engine in it. But how do you handle that transition as an automaker? How do you wind down those operations and what do you do? And I, I'm thinking Volvo's probably, you know, created the template that other automakers are going to follow. Well, I think Gary brought up a good point is, you know, the, the car park remaining, there has to be some sort of driver if political and environmental pressure really continues as these companies hit these goals of going 
all EV, you've still got this p- car park that's enormous in the world. And as we know, you know, the older these vehicles get, the more they pollute. So, so there's got to be some sort of driver there, and it could well be, you know, hydrocarbon fuels just get taxed like crazy, or use of the vehicle gets taxed in some way. Um, you know, you, you can't really dictate to people that can't afford a $40,000 EV what they're going to drive, but there's ways to kind of, you know, push in that regard. And, you know, a handle on fuel, a handle on registration, uh, you know, the three of us have joked about, you know, performance cars, you know, about having some sort of permit in the future to drive your, like Charlie Fried says, you know, C2 Corvette at a, at a racetrack somewhere. I mean, that's going to cost you money. And it'll probably cost you money to use these vehicles uh, just in regular use after a while. So I, I wonder about that. I mean, the regulatory guys, and if you, if you heard a couple of things interesting last week, you know, uh, Stellantis stock went down after that big EV day. And I, I was flabbergasted looking at that. I, they probably figured it would go up, but it went down. Uh, and, you know, the investment community is looking at what they're making money on right now. It's Hemi Chargers and Rams and Jeeps. So uh, this is going to be an interesting transition. Uh, and we can't just look at it North America-wise. We've got to look at it worldwide. Worldwide. Yeah. Well, I, I thought it was interesting. So Herbert Dees, who, who runs Volkswagen, all of Volkswagen, so CEO of, of uh, Volkswagen Group, said that by 2030, he sees the situation will be that it'll be, and I quote, the greatest transition from that we're gone, the industry's gone through from horses to cars. Okay, by 2030, this is going to be that sort of transition. And he believes that they're going to be able to get parity with internal combustion engines with electric vehicles in the next two to three years. Now, there, there was another point that he made that I thought was 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 absolutely fascinating. He basically said that everybody's starting from scratch, right? I mean, everybody is getting into this. So his goal is to participate over proportionately. Okay, so he's gonna he's gonna try to get bigger gains, and and so this 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 raises a question to you guys. I mean, okay, one would argue, okay, Tesla's got this big this head start and they're way ahead of of everyone else. But I mean, as you look at Volkswagen and Toyota and General Motors and Ford and Stellantis, I mean, are all of these guys resetting and having to compete like they had to compete a hundred years ago? I would argue, yeah. I mean, I, I think yeah. Deuce is right. You know, it's the quintessential paradigm shift. The technology has moved on and everybody starts from zero. To your point, Gary, Tesla's got a 10-year head start on everyone, maybe maybe greater. And it goes beyond just its battery management system and stuff like that. It's over-the-air updates. It's its interface, you know, with a giant screen. It's its full self-driving, which isn't really full self-driving, but it's more advanced than any of the other ADAS systems out there. And so everybody's got to catch up. And as you guys know, there is a mad scramble to get software engineers right now. There's a global shortage of these software engineers in every industry, but it's particularly acute in the automotive industry. And we've seen suppliers and automakers both make acquisitions not so much because they felt they needed to own that company, but it was a way of buying literally several thousand engineers. And so, yeah, I, I think it's true. They're all starting from zero. 
Yeah, but we, we also have this transition period where you got to make money in it too. And, you know, the companies making money in it are still the ones that are selling GTI golfs and, you know, Silverados as well. So, um, yeah, it's, it's just an interesting period. There's so many similarities to kind of 120 years ago at the kind of dawn of of uh, the combustion engine industry when there was steam and there was electrics competing and, uh, you know, fuel infrastructure wasn't really spread out yet. And a lot of new startup companies, I mean, you know, the startup suppliers and automakers were in the dozens back in that time. And we're going to see a lot of fallout uh, in the next few years in technology, component supply, system supply, and I think automakers too. I mean, look at all these electric pickup truck makers. Do you guys think that all of these guys are going to be around in five years? Some will survive. Yeah. But my, my own belief is most of the startups are going to go away. Some will survive and thrive. Conversely, I think most of the traditionals will probably survive, but there's going to be some losers as well. Who? Yep. I don't know. But if you look at other industries and other changes in technology, that's usually how it goes. The some of the startups, you know, figure out the, the ecosystem faster than others and they thrive in it. And some of the traditionals just can't make the transition. They can't let go of what was always successful for them. So, yep. Lindsay, you're talking about, you know, the need to make money, hmm. um, which, is, which is what companies are all about, right? And then, John, you were talking about software. And to, and to go to D's again, he said that software makes EVs more profitable for the company than vehicles powered by ICEs. And I, I, I don't know if this goes to the point, you know, one of your favorite topics, John, of, of, of data monetization, or if it's just simply the ability that, you know, the OEM through over the air updates has the ability to, you know, make, as it were, virtual service calls to vehicles that they would then get the money directly for. Yeah, I, I, look, I think you can make as much money with software services, with internal combustion engines, as with electric cars. I don't see the difference. I mean, yeah, you can do an over-the-air update with an electric car, but guess what? You know, uh, the new Silverado, the new F-150 can have over-the-air updates. You can reflash the proms for the engine and make it perform differently, better, presumably. So I, I'm not sure what he's talking about, why EVs are better in that regard. Maybe somebody who knows this better can explain it to me. But there's no question, data monetization is the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. And Deese specifically said he thinks it's going to be a $5 trillion business by 2025. And he wants Volkswagen to capture over a trillion of that. And those are numbers that just make my head spin. John, did VW's stock go up when he made those very hyperbolic claims? Probably not. You know, the investment community, it doesn't care what traditional automakers say because the traditional automakers have trained them to not believe them. Yeah. And so now it's up to the General Motors, the Toyotas, the Volkswagens of the world to deliver on these promises. And if they do, then the investment community will believe them. Yeah, I mean, in the media, we, we just see it all the time, the kind of like the gaming, you know, presentations and and press releases and announcements that are really kind of stacked. I mean, that Stellantis EV day was really stacked towards the investment community, you know, not the media. But, you know, they missed it on timing. 
if Stellantis had done that announcement back in February, stock would have gone through the roof. Yeah, it's interesting. But now yeah. everybody's made, you know, they've had battery days and they've had these days and those days. And now Stellantis comes out and it's, oh, 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 you guys too. Oh, come on, John. You got to be fair to, to Tavares. I mean, Stellantis only started existing in January. So it would have oh, been, been a little premature if they did this in February. No, no, I, I, you're absolutely right, Gary. Uh, all I'm saying, though, is had they been able to make that announcement in February or March. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. When, you know, the stock market was just churning like mad with anything EV, they would have been able to, you know, ride the crest of the wave. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and for the very reasons that you cite... You know, they're making their announcement now. As far as the investment community goes, that's old hat. That's old news. Hmm. So, so, John, when you when you when you said reflashing the EPROM, it, it, it got me to thinking about the executive order that uh, President Biden signed um, to promote competition, including the right to repair for vehicles, which would include things like changing that. Um, so, so there was uh, the, the very famous uh, Tesla case uh, of recently where um, a driver punctured the front belly pan and, and broke the coolant line port to the battery. And the Tesla dealer said, you know, this is, this is going to cost you 16 grand to fix. He took it to a repair shop and got it done for 700 bucks. Okay, so I want to put to you guys, is, is, is this a realistic example or is this just such an outlier that it's just crazy? Go ahead, Lindsay. Well, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of Tesla's. Tesla really doesn't have the same sort of broad, robust dealer network that everybody else does. And you know, they've had some cases recently when rodents have been getting into these vehicles uh, because they're using soy wrapped insulation and so forth. So mice and squirrels smell this stuff and they get in and. When that happens to you, you you take it to a Tesla repair center, which isn't a traditional car dealer. It's some of these places are in kind of weird industrial places and cities. And, uh, you know, they're not set up the way Chevy and Ford and Toyota and Honda are. So, um, I mean, good for that guy. My my first thought is, is he he figured it out, was able to get it. Hopefully he got it fixed safely. Um, But... um, yeah, I think that's an outlier. It, it It is and it isn't. I mean, you know, look, he took it to a Tesla store. They look up in the manual and it's like, we don't know how to fix it. We got to replace the battery pack. And that's $16,000. Then he takes it to a garage that knows what it's doing, specializes in electric cars. Yeah. And they figure out how to drill part out of it out, how to tap a new coupler in, get it all fixed. 700 bucks is still a lot of money, <laughs> but it's a whole lot less than 16,000. Yeah. But what all the independent garages are are grappling with right now, in, and, and this is where it gets dicey with right to repair, is got to do with cyber protection. 
So right now, if, if you want to do a, a diagnostics, for example, as an independent garage, you have got to be able to link into a computer at the OEM so that they can handle the software end of things all from a cyber protection standpoint. Hmm. And if you as an independent garage don't have that right equipment or the ability to get into it, you're screwed. And guess what? Every automaker is different. So in many cases, you need several pieces of equipment, you know, to do what one scanner would have done for you in the past. And I just know enough about this to get me in trouble. I know there's probably people listening to the show right now who go, oh, my God, you're not even, you know, getting into the real depth of the problem. But it's it's a real issue. And, it, you know, what the automakers would like is force us to go to the dealerships, you know, because dealers are going to lose a lot of business with over the year updates. If something can be fixed with software, you're no longer going to take it to the dealer. So if they can limit what independent garages, if, if the automakers can limit what independent garages can do, you're going to be forced to go to the dealer for this. And that's what the whole right to repair uproar is about. Right. And it's, it's, it's not just auto companies. I mean, it's, it's, you know, agricultural equipment manufacturers, cell phone manufacturers. I mean, just product after product after product. The, the companies that produce these products are saying, no, 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 we're the ones who can fix them. Only we can fix them. As soon as you do something, as soon as you make a change, this is, you know, it, it's going to void the warranty. It's going to violate all sorts of things. But to your point, John, um, a couple of years ago, um, sitting in for you, I, I was uh, hosting a panel on cybersecurity and trucking that was uh, put on by the National Defense Industrial Association. And one of the things that I learned there was that when you plug the diagnostic equipment into a vehicle, this then gives the diagnostic tool access to the whole system. So let's say for the sake of argument that you bought this piece of diagnostic equipment from a company that was based somewhere overseas where the people might not be crazy about the United States, suddenly your vehicle can be hacked just by plugging in that tool. And so, you know, there's there's a consideration that has to be given to, as you say, the cyber protection of vehicles on the road, whether they're, you know, trucks or cars or, or tanks or, or what have you. Well, yeah. I, I think what we're talking about here is it's, it's, you know, a transformation of the back shop as well. And for those repair shops and dealers that don't want to really get into this, I mean, somebody else has got to take their place because the vehicles are going to need some maintenance. Now, I, I think that that there's going to be a, a reduction of revenue because of uh, because of electric vehicles. If the battery guys are right and these things don't need maintenance and they're 200 plus thousand mile propositions, and you know, the, and the e-motors and the power electronics and and the battery, that whole propulsion system is going to be maintenance-free. I mean, I just took my car to a you know to a shop, and uh, when when you look at all the elements that they can make money on right now, it seems to me that there's a lot less with an electric propulsion system. But there will be these kind of very high technology areas where you've really got to know your stuff. You've got to be an electrical engineer pretty much to to know the, the, the you know, fault codes. And, uh, it, you know, when you plug that diagnostic tool in, know how to read it. And and so, uh, you know, I think we're going to see a big transformation in that regard. Yeah, we need to do a whole show on right to repair and get an expert in here and That'd really get to one. the bottom of it. Yeah, yeah. 
All right, all right, final subject, okay? So the Chicago Auto Show is starting this week for people in the greater Chicagoland area to go look at vehicles. Um, Okay, so I want to ask you guys, Jeep has been doing its Camp Jeep at Chicago since 2004. This year, we, we started off the show talking about the Bronco. There will be the Built Wild Bronco Mountain Experience that people will be able to go and drive Broncos on a 38-degree hill, okay? And they're going to have, you know, real-life experiences. So it's just not going to be looking at a Bronco that is sitting on a, on a piece of carpet. It's going to be out in the real world. Jeep will be running its, its vehicles back and forth and so on and so forth. So here's, here's my question to you. Is, is looking at static displays as we've long been familiar with at auto shows going away and will they transition to something where there are more experiential things and thirdly will these experiential things need to be attached to auto shows or can they just go to parking lots of shopping malls and just do it that way well, I mean, what you're talking about, you remember Land Rover created these things that were supposed to be a dealership. So it was kind of a Land Rover center. And the dealer was going to invest in a hill and mud crossings and, and you know, water and kind of tricky terrain to be able to give that experience to a Land Rover customer. And uh, I know there's a Jeep dealer out 96 going towards Lansing, and you can see it off the off the interstate that has his own off-road course. I think it's really smart for four by four, you know, sellers out there, because there are so many elements as we've seen driving the Bronco. Um, you know, I don't know. I mean, we, we've seen in some recent auto shows. Here's a sampling of a of a autonomous car and what that's like—a self-driving car. Um, I think people like to go to auto shows and just see nice, shiny, good smelling, brand new cars and look at them and sit in them and that kind of thing. And um, we know we, we've seen a shrinkage of this from the media perspective, but uh, some of these auto shows, the last Detroit auto show still brought in a lot of people. Uh, it'll be interesting to see in Chicago. And then we've got LA that's going to do a show. And I think New York is still going to do something. Um, and so to see how many regular consumers come in and still want that experience, I think it's great. If you've got it, you're selling four by fours. I think you've got to have that kind of thing. And, and the more thrilling, the better, really. I think that'll sell some Broncos. Of course, Bronco is sold out until 2023. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, look, you know, whatever kind of venue that you're looking at right now, it can be auto shows, it can be museums. They're all looking for experiential things that they can offer to people to be there. And, and consumers themselves, I think, are, are no longer interested in just walking around a big hall looking at shiny metal. Hmm. Uh, sure, you've got enthusiasts who will do that, but to get everyday families in, automakers no longer believe that that's enough. They think that you've got to really have people experience the new technology that you're selling them or the new type of vehicle that you're selling them. And with more and more off-road uh, sales taking place, there's a, a real keen interest in consumers to learn about that and, and experience that. And once they experience it, then they're even more excited about it. 
So getting back to your your question there, Gary, I, you know, I think auto shows as far as media days go are dead. I'm not even sure automakers are going to use auto shows to reveal new products. They can do those reveals online. We're all going to be there. They've been astonished at how much attention they get revealing these things online. But they need the some sort of show to get mass amounts of people in. And if you have a bunch of automakers doing things at once, there's a critical mass that brings in a lot of people. So I guess, you know, bottom line is media shows or, or auto shows for the media, it's a dying breed. It hasn't died yet, but it's dying. Whereas for consumers, I, I think the future could be pretty bright as long as you make it really fun and attractive to be there. Yeah, John, I, I think maybe a key here, you, you make some good points, but a key is going to be simulators because these vehicles are getting so sophisticated. I mean, you go into a dealership, they can't tell you how ABS works and that's 30 years old. They can't tell you how an all-wheel drive system works. Uh, and, and they're getting more sophisticated. Now you've got uh, automatic emergency braking and lane keeping, and you can't really do that in even the basement of, uh, of, uh, you know, of, a, of a trade show venue. So you really need to get people into very realistic simul simulators for these things because I think, I mean, the dealers don't want to take the time to show you how these systems work. It's overlay upon overlay of electrical, electrically controlled, very sophisticated safety and performance systems. Um, so it, it, the only way to really show this stuff, if you're going to, and, and they should, is, is through simulation. I, See, I love that idea. I think that's a fantastic idea. All right. Okay. But, but this, this is where you guys are completely off base here. Okay. <laughs> when, when, when this family goes to the show and they're getting the corn dogs and they're getting the candied almonds and they're, they're just, just enjoying them, they're not going to go sit down for a tutorial on how a anti-lock braking system works or any of this stuff. Okay. They want to be entertained. And that's what these shows are about. These shows are about entertainment. And if there's a little bit of education that can sneak in the back door, that's fine. But but to say, like, all right, at 2 p.m., we will have a seminar on the actuation of all of your safety systems. Come back. Nobody's yeah. going. Okay. Yeah, they're, but they're Jerry, I, I, I got to tell you, I, I, a wise man named McElroy once said, and I think this is a great idea, why not sell cars at auto shows? Why not do that transaction right on the show floor? And so here's this brand new red Silverado, okay? And and that would be having a simulator there or having some sort of tutorial or at least, you know, what the dealer's supposed to do at the dealership but they don't do uh, is, you know, maybe that's what auto shows should become is a, a transactional venue as well. And the way to do that is because you're going through the list and you're saying, Oh, this baby's got automatic emergency braking and lane keeping, and it's got a LIDAR and a radar and it's got, uh, uh, you know, hill descent control, et cetera, et cetera. What the hell are these things? So you're going to, you know, you sign for the vehicle and then you're in your vehicle and you have no idea about any of this stuff. So I, I think maybe there's a hybrid there in terms of, uh, transform the auto show into this giant kind of bazaar of selling cars. And, and Gary, you're right. You know, if, 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 if it's going to be a, we're going to have a seminar on safety and you can come and uh, experience it virtually, no one's going to play. But if you make it a game 
And part of the game is, you know, how can you navigate this course and look how many times the safety thing saved your butt and or how you cleverly avoided a situation. You make it a game. You make it entertaining. You give them a prize, you, whatever. While you're getting shot you on the freeway, John, while, while somebody's shooting at you. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Look, I've always wanted, you know, uh, the radio buttons on a car to launch missiles and a machine gun at the top of the shifter. So I'm, I'm right there with you, Gary. You could call it 405 freeway at rush hour, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I am so there. <laughs> All right, before you guys go go deeper into this 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 scary hole, we should end the show. <laughs> it is a good place to wrap it up. Yeah. Lindsay, thanks so much for coming back on. Always good to have you on. Always here. a pleasure, John. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and it was great having Charlie Freeze with us too. Absolutely. You know, very interesting what they're doing there. And Gary, you and I will just keep on doing it. Let's do it next week. We'll do it then. So thanks everybody for having tuned in. AutoLine After Hours is brought to you by Bridgestone Tires, solutions for your journey, and by Borg Warner, propulsion solutions that support a clean, energy-efficient world. Visit our website, AutoLine.tv, where you can watch us live Thursday afternoons. Get your daily fix with AutoLine Daily and in-depth analysis and interviews with AutoLine This Week. There's all that and much more at Autoline.tv. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.